This week on the show, we cover an article about rethinking OpenBSD security. We covered the FreeBSD 2020 quarter one status report in more detail. We have the notion about progress and user interfaces for you. We have a bit of a comment about uh, Thomas E. Dickey's uh, article on NetBSD curses. Uh, we have also making Unix a little bit more like Plan 9 with a couple more changes here and there. Then we have the not actually Linux distro review on Ars Technica for you and some more items in this week's episode of BSD. Now. BSD Now, episode 347, New Directions. Recorded for the 22nd of April 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome back to our episode of this week. I hope you're all doing well, hopefully at home and not too far out into the uh, big wide world, as we all shelter at home just a little bit longer. And we will provide you with the... Uh, distraction let's say and give you the latest news about the bsds and there's a couple of new headlines this week and the first one is rethinking OpenBSD security so this is a another great blog post by ted unix uh, and he says OpenBSD aims to be a secure operating system in the past few months there were quite a few security erratas however that's not too unusual but some of the recent ones were a bit special one might even say bad the OpenBSD approach to security has a few aspects, two of which might be avoiding errors and minimizing the risk uh, of mistakes. Other people have other ideas about how to build secure systems. I think it's worth examining whether the OpenBSD approach works or if this is evidence that we're doomed to failure. Uh, I picked a few errata, not all of them, that were interesting and happened to suit my particular narrative. So the libc auth vulnerability. Uh, the auth function, which execs helpers without checking the argv, and he has uh, links to the reports and the patches to fix it. He says, this is embarrassingly simple, yet probably not obvious in code review. Uh, in part, I think there's some confusion as to who is responsible for checking the inputs. You could look at any of the three components involved, calling the calling program itself, libc, or the login password uh, function that's getting called and reasonably conclude that someone else is doing the checks. In the end, I guess we've decided libc is at fault since that's where the patch went in. But that code doesn't look immediately wrong to me. The more interesting part of the story is that even with the libc bug, the login underscore password utility should not have been exploitable in this manner except for some other bug. Back in 2001, login underscore password was rewritten to support Kerberos. And that is perhaps the real bug that was introduced. Uh, a request for challenge response auth, or think something like S-key, uh, should return authenticated uh, instead of silence. Many years later, the Kerberos code was removed, but the refactor to support it remained, and so did the bug that it was that was introduced. The bug wouldn't have been a complete non-issue, and there were some other related issues with the argv parsing. But the impact certainly would have been reduced had the Kerberos refactor have been uh, thoroughly undone. So the argv parsing uh, can be tricky to get right in a security context. A fair number of suggestions how to prevent problems wouldn't have helped. Uh, I'll note that the volume popped up after fixing file names made the rounds again, but the leading dash has nothing to do with a file name. So he's uh, talking about uh, another blog post by D. Wheeler. Uh, called Fixing Unix and Linux File Names. Um, and then some of the other vulnerabilities that he was talking about, uh, like ld.so, he says, naughty environment variables weren't removed in ld.so. Something that looks like a memory bug, except mostly not. It's tying the success of one operation, which is splitting environment variables, to the removing of that variable, getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, advocates for various type systems, no doubt, believe that we would have handled these operations in the correct order, but I'm not sure that helps. The C code can't fail because it was missing error handling or failed to notice the allocation failure. And then there was the FTP bug. Uh, FTP would follow redirects to local files. Mm. 
the NetBSD FTP bug where it could exec redirects in my go-to example of runaway features. The same bug, but with fortunately minor consequences, strikes again. But, you know, stay indoors, don't add features to your programs. <laughs> uh, so this one is basically a redirect on the FTP server or the web server could redirect to a local file causing you to read a file that you didn't mean to. Um, and then there's the uh, SMTPD from vulnerability. Uh, so SMPDD uh, failed to validate some sender addresses. And there's, again, links to the report, the patch, and some commentary on it. He says, I think Giles's commentary covers most of this, but I'll recap some backstory. Long ago, everyone had their email stored in slash var slash mail in inbox files. This is problematic because there's a possibility of corruption if your mail user agent deletes an email while the mail delivery agent is delivering a new one, not to mention all the other problems like from mangling. So you need to lock the inbox file. But file locking isn't reliable over NFS. So you need lock files instead. But you need everyone to agree on a particular locking protocol. And while the inbox files are owned by the user, the directory is owned by root. So you need to uh, exec a setuid helper to actually deliver to that inbox. Well, that's one problem. Another holdover from a long time ago is that the mail delivery agent program is configurable and may not just be a program but might be a shell pipeline. People set their mail delivery agents to spam assassin pipe mail delivery agent, and that's not something you can just pass to exec VE. Some of that's probably not 100% accurate, but close enough. So he says there's a lot of historic complexity here, and it's unfortunately close to the surface. Mail delivery has a long history, and people built up very complex systems and workflows on top of that, uh, which made building a drop-in replacement very difficult. Despite various levels of privilege separation, the less privileged processes are still mostly trusted by the parent, which runs as root. Uh, it will execute the commands and arguments that it receives. Avoiding this seems as simple as switching to using Mailder, but that requires another change elsewhere. And inc uh, the included mail user agent, Mail, can't currently read Mailder. Personally, I'd say this is long overdue, hmm. but Mbox still works for some people, and the upgrade path is probably not fully transparent or automatic. Yeah, I'm definitely on board with Mailder. Like, don't store your mail in something that's not Mailder. Mm, yeah. You want each email as a separate file uh, because it just means that things, your whole mailbox never gets corrupted. And on things, if you have a good file system, it has a lot of advantages. Oh, yes, for sure. You know, I don't generally do mail directly on the machine like that using the mail command line tool. But if people still do, someone should definitely just teach the mail command, mail their support, and we can switch to that. That would be so much better. Yeah, and we won't look back. Generally, my mail is done via IMAP from a mail there. Mm. One more, and then the conclusion. So I, won't, I won't keep prattling on all day, but this is a really good article. So Ted goes on, the SMTPD read vulnerability. An out-of-bounds read in SMPTD, that's hard to say really quickly, could be leveraged into command execution. Again, report and patch linked. The real deal memory safety issue. By uh, sending back some funny status lines, a remote SMTP server could inject commands into your SMTPD queue. When an email is queued for redelivery, SMP SMTPD uh, adds some information about the destination to its header so it knows which commands to run. In an attack similar to an HTTP request smuggling, if you can create a bounce uh, with unexpected commands in the header, then SMTPD will execute when it attempts that redelivery. As above, one problem is that the most sensitive part of SMTPD is very close is in very close proximity to the parts under attack. The most serious problem in this instance, I think, is that the SMTPD chose to store its own metadata in line with the email data. This makes parsing desync attacks possible. If the quota reply from the server being, uh, being saved in a completely separate file from the one containing delivery instructions, the out-of-bounds read uh, would have been mostly harmless. Like, I, yeah, a lot of other mail servers do this. You end up with like three or four files for each mail sitting in the queue so that they can keep you know, 
stuff the attacker can control and stuff that the program controls in separate files. Anyway, this vulnerability stands out to me because I think the inherent danger of commingling data from different trust levels was never recognized, uh, and it's clearly perilous. On to Ted's conclusions. The conclusion was, of course, preordained, but here we go anyway. I think several of these errata help demonstrate that principles like eliminating legacy interfaces and reducing complexity are vital to maintaining security. For the most part, the failure was in not following through, uh, not because the principle itself was flawed or untenable. Some things slip through, but I'd argue not because the vigilance necessary is superhuman. There's danger here of providing useless advice like, just don't make mistakes uh, and, and get good. <laughs> but I think the OpenBSD approach is more actionable than that. Even OpenBSD is subject to compromise for the sake of practicality, which is how some legacy designs stick around. So the lesson, perhaps, is to really stick with the principles that work and not just when convenient but not always as easy. Uh, it's not always an easy choice to make. Of these three vulnerabilities, I classify as the most serious, the auth and the two SMTPD ones. All were more or less exploitable only due to design issues beyond the original bug. They would have been just minor oopsies, uh, which gave me the hope that we didn't always have to be perfect. Alas, it can be hard to identify design flaws in the abstract, and all of the parts of the system can look secure but the weak points uh, remain in the joinery as those secure parts connect together. Uh, privilege separation is a key component of OpenBSD security and inter-process communication is at the heart of it. Uh, more focus on what can go wrong with corrupted processes would help. Secure browsers are involving sandboxes which require larger and larger exploit chains. SMTBD in particular is supposed to be secure against memory corruption in the network processes, but the ease with which a child can control the parent is pretty alarming. Only one errata strikes me as a vulnerability that would have been prevented by using a safer language. Yes, there's likely uh, some programmatic idiom which I followed religiously may have helped in some cases, but I'd need more evidence to be convinced people would encode the relevant invariants by default. Writing a mail server is tricky business if you're constrained by designs that came before. Oh yes, for sure. And yes, I think that's why email has been such a terror for so long is that, you know, no matter how new your mail server is, um, it's still got to do all the things that the old mail servers did. Yeah, for compatibility and making sure you get the message from these clients. Right. Well, it's more because you need to hook up to the anti-spam systems that were designed to hook into the other things and so on. Mm. Yeah, it's not just mail delivery. It's also a whole lot of other things. Yeah, uh, very nice article indeed by Ted Unangst. And uh, our next item is also a longer piece because the FreeBSD 2020 quarter one status report has been released with many entries from different teams and uh, projects. So uh, it's definitely a good thing to cover. And it shows, you know, that the, in this case, the FreeBSD project is busy with different things, although you don't see them very often, but these status reports give the people that are working on them a chance to show their work and ask for feedback or just give you an update on what's, what's new, what's coming up. Uh, let's see. Oh, the introduction is always, oh, <laughs> it's, it's always new and there's always some, someone different writing it. So it starts with, welcome to the quarterly reports of the future. Well, at least at the first quarterly report from 2020, the new timeline mentioning in the last three reports still holds, which brings us to this report, which covers the period of January 2020 to March 2020. And as you uh, will see in this report, we'd had quite an active quarter with big changes to both kernel, user land, documentation, ports, and third-party projects in the form of everything from bug and security fixes over to new features to speed improvements and optimizations. Uh, as this report also covers the start of the epidemic, it's also interesting to note that a quick glance at the subversion logs reveal that there has been no overall drop in the number of source commits, that docs commits have also stayed constant, and that ports have seen an upwards trend even. So we hope that all of you uh, are, uh, you and yours are safe, as can be managed, and that we get through this together by working together. Very nice uh, introductory words. So we have different reports. The first uh, block of reports is the team reports uh, from the foundation, the core team, uh, the release engineering team, cluster administration, continuous integration, ports collection teams, and the graphics team status reports. 
Yes, quite a few uh, different status reports. Yeah. <laughs> like we said, there's an overview from the foundation looking at what they've been working on, a uh, mix of foundation stuff, uh, partnerships and commercial user support, uh, fundraising efforts, and also an overview of their OS improvements. Um, they say over the first quarter of 2020, uh, there were 273 commits to the FreeBSD based system repository tagged as sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, about 12% of the commits uh, over that quarter. Uh, many of these are part of sponsored or staff projects, uh, you know, including Ed Mast, uh, Konstantin Belisov, Mark Johnson, Lee Wen, who, etc., um, as they support the project. And there's some detail on what each of them is working on uh, and more updates on the continuous integration stuff and the support for the previous D, uh, infrastructure, including the cluster admin team and so on and then the FreeBSD core team has its status update mostly issuing new commit bits to a bunch of people uh, the release engineering team has worked on the schedules for 11.4 and 12.2 releases cluster admin team stood up new mirrors including uh, one in South Africa and one in Seattle and they at the time uh, were working on new mirrors in Malaysia Brazil and Amsterdam the one in Amsterdam came online today. I threw that switch this morning oh. um, before the show. So uh, if you were in Europe and your package downloads were a bit slow, they probably won't be anymore. Excellent. Uh, as we've deployed the new machine that's got uh, something like six or eight X as many IOPS uh, and 10 times as much bandwidth and so on. Ooh, nice. That's great. And yeah, it should help quite a bit. So yeah, cool. Uh, sometimes you don't see these people uh, doing the work behind the scenes, but if things like mirrors are down, then people are kind of like noticing. But so uh, even more uh, good that we have these people working on that. So thanks for this team and their work they're doing. Uh, there's updates and status reports from the continuous integration team. They have also uh, been busy like um, making all these changes integrate like uh, Clang NLD toolchain and uh, being uh, Cure, uh, putting Cure into the base. RISC-V jobs are now uh, generating full disk images and run tests in QEMU. So I think, yeah, they're, they're running the Linux test something uh, to test our Linux emulation layer on AMD64, more tests for PowerPC64, and lots of other stuff. Mm -hmm. If you want to help out with that, there is uh, a previous dash testing mailing list, and they're uh, grateful for more help. Yeah, many of these uh, entries have like work in progress or how you can contact us if you want to help out. And if you have a bit of spare time or can uh, share your expertise in certain area, then definitely get in touch with these people. Uh, and then the ports team had their update. During the last quarter, the number of ports settled around 39,000. Uh, there are currently 2,400 open PRs, of which only 640 are not assigned to someone yet. Over the first quarter of 2020, they saw 8,146 commits by 173 different committers, plus 357 commits by 52 committers to the quarterly branch. And they also uh, gave out a bunch of commit bits so that that team will continue to grow. And we can keep up with all of the applications that keep having new versions and new applications and so on. On the infrastructure side, they've also added new uses flags uh, and removed some old ones. They are in the process of removing some of the uh, Python 2.7 stuff from the ports tree, and that means that things that rely on Python 2 will need to be updated or uh, deprecated. Um, and then the big one was after a long period of work by a large team of people, Xorg in the ports tree has been updated from 1.18 to 1.20. Also, the web browser has been updated, Firefox 75 and Firefox ESR 68, and Chromium version 80 uh, were there. Of course, you know this only covers to the end of March, so uh, there's probably even newer stuff now. And the package manager was updated to 1.13.2. And I think 1.14 is out already in the... Um, Repository? Uh, the main branch, yep. And also, uh, Antoine ran 29 different exp runs, which is basically running the build of the Empire Ports tree against a patch to make sure that that patch doesn't uh, break things. 
they were testing updates to KDE and Poplar, changes to the package tools itself, and some other build stuff. Uh, and then, you know, as we talked about, testing compatibility with various source changes, including removing the ProcFS-based debugging features, uh, fixing um, thread local storage alignment, and also uh, possibly include, or only including the libssp non-shared archive on uh, i386 and power architectures, not on newer ones. Okay. The other big team update is from the FreeBSD graphics team, uh, which mostly is responsible for the graphics driver and the Xorg stack on top of that. Uh, so that team reports the FreeBSD X11 graphics team maintains the low levels of the FreeBSD graphics stack. This includes the actual graphic drivers, the graphic libraries like Mesa and OpenGL, and the Xorg server itself and its related libraries and applications. And now they're even extending into Wayland and its related libraries and applications. Uh, the biggest highlight by far during the previous quarter was the long-awaited update of XOR-Server to version 1.20. After years of work by many people, uh, this update finally landed in the form of XOR-Server 1.20.7. With this update came a couple of new things. Most notably, FreeBSD 12 and later uh, was switched from using or switched to using the new UDEV slash EVDEV backend by default for handling input devices, such as your mouse and keyboard. Uh, together with this release, the OpenGL library implementation of Mesa was switched to use DRI3 instead of the older DRI2, uh, so that's updated as well. These updates caused some fallout uh, when they were first committed, most notably issues with keyboards, um, but with help from Michael uh, Gemlin, and others on the mailing list, most issues were sorted out pretty quickly. Unfortunately, version 304 of the NVIDIA graphics driver is no longer supported as of this release. So if you have a graphics card that is so old, it's not supported by the current long-term, the current old long-term support driver, uh, then you might need a new graphics card. Uh, but that I think is only 12 year old and older graphics cards or something like that. Uh, apart from this update, there's also been ongoing work to keep the various DRM KMOD ports and packages up to date, mostly in response to changes in FreeBSD's current API and also in security issues found in the Intel i905 driver. Uh, and they also have uh, regular uh, bi-weekly meetings, uh, and I think the notes for those go up on the FreeBSD-meetings repo on GitHub. And if you're interested, they offer links to the, their mailing list, their uh, Gitter chat and their IRC chat. So thanks for the graphics folks and their efforts in this area. Then we have projects in the report. So there is uh, an entry for NFS over the TLS uh, implementation in an effort to improve the NFS security and internet draft, which they expect will become an RFC uh, soon, specifies the use of TLS 1.3 to encrypt all the data traffic on a Sun RPC connection, which NFS uses. And so this is... Uh, an exciting and uh, desirable project. And uh, Rick, Rick Macklem is working on that, who's doing most of the NFS uh, in FreeBSD. And um, he writes that work is still needed to be done for the case where the NFS client is expected to have a signed certificate. But in particular, it is not obvious to him that the current solution is for clients uh, that do not have a fixed IP address or DNS name. The code now is about ready for testing, but requires that the kernel TLS be able to support, receive, as well as transmit. Patches to the kernel TLS for receive are being worked on uh, by John Baldwin and probably others. And once the receive side kernel TLS becomes available, the code and subversion uh, will need third-party testing and a secure evaluation by someone familiar with TLS. Basically, this will be able to use the in-kernel TLS that FreeBSD got from Netflix uh, to do high-speed encryption of NFS. Uh, and it, so apparently the kernel RPC has been modified to do a start TLS RPC uh, and to do the up calls to user space daemons that perform the SSL uh, validation and so on. Uh, so it actually looks like a, a nice design and means, you know, you could have encrypted NFS without having to do Kerberos and all that extra nonsense. Uh -huh. Very good work. I'm looking forward to being able to play with that. Then uh, Brooks has a quick update on QA, the testing framework. Uh, so historically, QA has been installed from the ports collection. While this is fine for mainstream architectures, it can pose a bootstrapping issue for new architectures and package installation is quite slow under emulation or on an FPGA. Uh, so by including it in the FreeBSD-based system, we can avoid these issues. 
We hope that this inclusion will spur testing of embedded platforms and simplify the process of testing uh, in continuous integration since you won't have to pull in QL from ports. I think there's a kind of related thing that FreeBSD project has forked uh, Lua to get it out from underneath the Google contributor license agreement mm. uh, so that changes can be merged without having to sign a CLA. Oh, okay. Related to the CI testing we talked about of the Linux, the LTP test suite, uh, Edward Naparala has been working on Linux compatibility layer updates. So work during the quarter focused on source code cleanup and making it easier to debug missing features. There were, however, some user visible changes, including adding support for the TCP underscore cork option that's used by Nginx, adding support for map underscore 32-bit flag for MMAP, uh, which fixes some mono binaries uh, when you're using the Ubuntu repos, and a fix for DNS resolution with libc versions newer than 2.30, which affected CentOS 8. Uh, so currently, there are still over 400 of the Linux test uh, suite tests that fail. Uh, and if you're interested in digging into a couple of those and helping whittle that number down, uh, do please get in touch. Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, and Mark Johnson and Michael Tuxin have been using SysCaller, uh, which is a syscall fuzzing tool to fuzz the FreeBSD system and find different bugs. Uh, and thanks to Backtrace.io for sponsoring that and the FreeBSD Foundation. And they say a number of kernel bugs have been found by syscaller and fixed this quarter, mostly in the network stack and the file descriptor table code. Bug investigations have led to improvements in debugging facilities and assertions, for example, in the SCTP stack. Uh, syscaller reproducers have also been used uh, or added to Peter Holmes' Stress 2 suite, uh, helping ensure that regressions are found quickly. And the syscaller instance uh, hosted by Backtrace.io, has been very useful in testing syscaller improvements and finding bugs. So Google runs a dedicated syscaller instance targeting FreeBSD. It has proved fruitful to run multiple instances since they end up building uh, different corpuses and thus different uh, discovering different bugs, but also finding the overlap, which can help you find uh, decide if a report is actually a bug more quickly. Uh, support for fuzzing a number of new system calls has been added, including the new copy file range and the real path at uh, syscalls, as well as a bunch of the other uh, Capsicum syscalls. Some work um, was also done to audit existing system call definitions to ensure that FreeBSD uh, specific extensions to POSIX system calls are actually covered. Uh, work is ongoing to target the Linux emulation layer as well and to collect uh, kernel dumps so that one-off crashes with no reproducers uh, might still have a chance of being debugged. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the kernel, uh, Christoph Provost has been working on the bridge driver. And this is the current implementation of if bridge uses a single mutex to protect its internal data structures. As a result, there's nowhere near as fast as it could be. This is relevant to users who want to run many VNet jails or virtual machines bridged together. Uh, as part of this project, several new tests have been uh, added to the IfBridge code. They're generally very useful for validating any locking changes and will also help prevent regressions uh, in future changes. So those tests now live under user test sysnet IfBridge test. Uh, the current uh, work is concentrating on uh, investigating if it's possible to leverage the concurrency kit uh, epoch code for the data path uh, in order to make bridges much faster. Um, and I think the answer is Yes, uh, in the testing he did on a, I think it was a six core, three gigahertz machine, so a, a Xeon class server, he saw packets per second pass through the bridge go from like 4 million to 18 million or something like that. Mm, that's a significant improvement. Yes, so uh, quite a big improvement there. Uh, and then Konstantin Belisov worked on SIG Fastblock, and Mark Johnson worked on ARM64 large system extension atomic instructions and improving those. The team at Microsoft worked on the FreeBSD on Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure stuff. There's some updates there. The team at Cambridge, including Robert Watson, John Baldwin, Brooks Davis, uh, Ruslan Buchan, and Andrew Turner, worked on the ARM Morello platform, which is the uh, going to be the hardware platform for the Capability Hardware Enhanced Risk Instructions, or CHERRY. Uh, which is a new high-security CPU uh, that will run FreeBSD specifically. Uh, it'll be the first OS for it and everything. Uh, so there's a big update on that if you're interested. Uh, also, 
uh, work to support the uh, NXP ARM64 system on a chip and a bunch of its devices. Updates on the Elastic Network Adapter for FreeBSD running in Amazon uh, to handle you know 100 gigabit per second traffic. And then there's updates from the PowerPC team, the RISC-V team. And I guess one of the biggest bits of news, actually, uh, is that GCC 4.2.1 has been uh, retired from FreeBSD finally. Woo-hoo. So as of February 29th, 2020, uh, it has been deleted forever. So back in 2007, uh, the GNU compiler collection, GCC, migrated to using uh, GPL v3, uh, which prompted discussions about the future of the FreeBSD toolchain, because uh, that, that up to that time we were using GCC, but it was under the GPL v2, and that was kind of okay. So we held the toolchain summit back at BSD Can in 2010, and Roman uh, Devaki gave an update on the Clang BSD project, which is a project to start building FreeBSD using the new and rapidly improving Clang compiler. Uh, and you know, over the last 10 years, Clang has uh, imported into FreeBSD-based system and made more and more uh, widely used, first uh, by being installed as a not default G- uh, CC and eventually becoming the default for everything. GCC 4.2.1 was kept in the tree for a few FreeBSD targets that had migrated to Clang, such as MIPS and Spark 64. But early on in 2020, all remaining targets had either migrated to an external toolchain using uh, like GCC 9 or something from ports, uh, or had been deprecated and removed, like uh, Spark 64. So now that there are no in-tree consumers for GCC, it was removed uh, in commit 358454. And if there was a BSD can, there definitely would have been a cake for the deletion of GCC. There was much in, uh, rejoicement, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I guess related to another uh, recent discussion, the ELF CTL utility has been introduced on FreeBSD, which allows you to, per binary, control some of the security mitigations that FreeBSD supports. So it allows you to um, disable uh, things like ASLR, uh, the MMAP protmax, uh, the stack gap, or WXRX on a per binary basis. I remember when it was first introduced, we talked about how you can do that on OpenBSD by setting a specific flag on the file system when you mount it, saying anything in this file system doesn't have to do WXRX. With this uh, LCTL, you can control it as a per binary note uh, in the ELF header. Yeah, so there's much more in there, and many of the reports have more details in them, uh, much more than we could cover here. Yeah, uh, there's... For example, ports, there's updates on KDE, XFCE, Wine, Go, uh, the SysCTL MIB info, uh, and, that, and then for documentation, there's a status update from the translation team. Uh, they've got 10 different languages on the go now, uh, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. There's also someone working on a FreeBSD man page overhaul making sure the history and standard sections of a lot of those man pages are updated. Uh, that's really nice. And then there's also third-party projects, including POT and Nomad drivers, uh, Nomad BSD itself, uh, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we definitely recommend you read the whole uh, uh, report and uh, dive into individual sections that are of interest. We went over it for 20 minutes and barely scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, definitely give a shout out to all the people that are um, have helped, well, first of all, do these projects and status reports and also the people who compiled them into uh, uh, one big piece. All right, time for the news roundup this week. We have uh, the notion of progress and user interfaces for you. So uh, this is an article on Hubie's Sea Swines. Uh, They write that um, the notion of progress in user interfaces. One trait of modern Western culture is the notion of progress, a view claiming at large everything is getting better and better. How should we think about progress, both in general and regarding technology? In some areas, the claim of progress arguable is true. We have good reasons to complain about the state of democracy, but we still acknowledge that more people than ever in history have food and water and access to education, medicine, <coughs> medicine, <coughs> okay, uh, and basic healthcare. Yep. Current crisis notwithstanding. We have good reasons to be worried about the implications of technology, social media, a sedentary war of life, but just the same, have good reasons to see how much good technology has done and is doing. 
Especially when thinking about the web, we should get better at thinking of the state in dialectical terms as a balance where good and bad will always be present and the aim is to keep the weight and the tipping point on the right side. What is progress and what is not is a very complicated question. When we speak about software applications, we're not naive than in other areas. This is at least uh, the feeling of the author here. A little further down is, but how about how we use computers? How about our user interfaces? Is it true we're making progress? I don't know. Microsoft and Apple made the graphical user interface mainstream, influenced by uh, ideas from the Xerox Park, but some say important aspects were lost and forgotten in this process. Most notable Alan Kay, but also the modern UX genius Brett Victor. If you only know the standard history written and have recollections from your youth in the 90s and remember Windows 3.1, you will be surprised to like have a small talk interface from 1976 resemble this very, very closely or not too far. Mm -hmm. So they talk a little bit about uh, why not Acme on Plan 9. There's a couple of, there's an applications link to a tour of applications where you uh, can see some differences and some things that they do in the Plan 9. More and more, when they think about this, without doubt, the improvements of our applications, generation by generation, some workflows and aspects of applications are more primitive and worse than those of the Unix system of the 1970s and environments like those of Xerox Park. While features improve, they sometimes get the feeling that overall philosophy of applications and the implicit consequence of this philosophy and how it materializes in concrete GUIs today all too often are commercialized. And they talk about some more about, you know, GUIs, synergies, and, um, you know, if interfaces resemble each other, a new user immediately can start using the interface. And yeah, it's an interesting article. Well, it's also interesting how we tend to be moving away from applications to just everything's a web browser. Or, you know, if you do get an application, it's just a bundled web browser specialized for that one site. <laughs> Yeah, it's very true today. And so uh, they close down with, an, uh, with a quote at the bottom from Douglas Adams. Uh, we are stuck with technology when what we really want is just stuff that works. Yeah, so definitely recommend reading that. It's uh, a nice uh, brain picking about, you know, is that really a good UI for me or nowadays? Yeah, um, there's quite a bit more to that article. So if you're interested uh, in looking at what the UIs could have been and, and how they're developing and so on. Do check it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so next, uh, we have a blog post uh, from, well, I don't know if this is, no, this is not from Thomas's blog, but uh, a recent um, post about um, NetBSD curses by Thomas Dickey. I was uh, recently pointed at a web page on uh, Thomas Dickey's site talking about NetBSD curses. It seems initially that the page was intended uh, to be a pointer to some differences between NCurses and NetBSD curses, and does appear to start off in this vein, but it seems that the author has lost the plot at the document evolved, and in the tail end it seems to be devolving into some sort of uh, slagging match. <laughs> I don't want to go through Mr. Dickey's uh, document point by point, that would be uh, tedious, but I want I uh, would like to pick out some of the things that I believe to be the most egregious. He says, please note that even though I am a NetBSD developer, the opinion below are my own and not that of the NetBSD project. I guess the first thing that Thomas Dickey did to uh, peeve the author of this blog post is not be able to spell their name correctly. <laughs> I know that always starts me off on the wrong foot, too. To continue reading? Lots of feedback emails that we've gotten over the years with uh, my name spelled a variety of different ways. <laughs> anyway. So they want to start with uh, some background on how they uh, got started working on the NetBSD version of Curses. Originally, I was using a commercial x86 port of System 5 Unix on my home PC, but started looking elsewhere when I found that the slip uh, implementation was buggy. At the time, Linux had no networking at all, but the BSD source code had just been ported to the PC in the project known as 386BSD. Since this had networking, I picked this up and then switched to NetBSD early on. Being used to a System 5 cursors, I was disappointed to find that there was no real way to handle cursor and function keys in a terminal-independent manner as there is in a System 5 cursors system. I developed and submitted uh, a patch to the NetBSD cursors library that added support for the keypad function and modified the getCharacter function 
to perform the conversion of key sequences into key symbols. Uh, it was on the basis of this patch that I was offered the opportunity to become a NetBSD developer. Later, when working on NetBSD curses, my overall philosophy has been to follow the single Unix specification version 2, X slash open curses, issue 4, volume 2, uh, which they'll just refer to as susv2 from now on to avoid having to write all that out. If a behavior is undefined, then I took to N curses and matched the behavior there, if appropriate, on the basis that this normally results in less issues for someone porting an application. I added netcurses extensions in response to problem reports as well. Let's now have a look at Mr. Dickey's comments, and he goes through talking about things like the uh, window structure opaque. Uh, I don't apologize for what I did. I believe that the fact that the window pointer was available for applications to poke at is a violation of the software layering and was just wrong. Uh, and anyway, there's quite a few points in there. So if you're interested, uh, you can read the link to the original Thomas Dickey post and then the response from NetBSD here that uh, goes on and has quite a few examples. Yeah, that's the proper reading order. So to, to know about these issues, you should have to read the original article first. But interesting. It's definitely, yeah, good to, to know about these things and uh, uh, reading the discussion that's ensuring. Uh, then, while we were on the subject of Plan 9, we have making uh, Unix a little more Plan 9-like. So this is uh, over at Voozle.org. They write that they're not really interested in defending anything. They tried out Plan 9 port and liked it, but they have to live in Unix land. Here's how I set that up. Uh, they start with a warning, of course. The Suckless community and some of the Plan 9 communities are dominated by jackasses. I hope that's strong enough wording to impress the severity. Uh, don't go into IRC for help. Stay off the Suckless email client. The software is great, but the people who write it are well-spoken and well-reasoned, but for some reason the fandom is horrible to everyone. Okay, with that warning aside, uh, they have a section on the X term. So you, here's a couple of configuration uh, things you can do, it turns out. Uh, for X term, uh, it has some really cool ideas, but Unix has a long history of using graphical terminals and lots of stuff needs VT220. Zero. Uh, uh, 22, zero. Uh, X term is a good compromise. Uh, so you can make the Ectrum scroll bar and all other Athena scroll bars, for that matter, prettier with a couple of X resources entries. So this is your X resources file. And they provide a couple of things like how to change the scroll bar thickness and uh, foreground and background colors. Or you can also swap the left and right mouse buttons. And so to be more like Acme in nine term. So that's uh, configuration section. Then they have a, a section about 9WM. They're not maintaining uh, the 9WM window manager they write, but if you like Rio, you should give it at will. There are some differences you might prefer, and there's a link uh, to 9WM. Then you talk a bit about uh, SSHFS. As a non-root user, you can mount remote file systems locally with SSHFS. It's probably as close as Unix is going to get for a while, and it's not awful. Uh, then the plan 9 lm command is great. It's like apropos or man-k, but it outputs lines so you can copy and paste into a prompt to pull up the page. And they provide a script to do just that. And then they have a section about xdg open um, and mon. So xdg open is also a little bash, or not bash script, shell script, of course. Uh, this is the current Linux notion of how to do things like the plumber. Just about every modern program calls out to it to open files and it uses whichever one is first in your path so you can make a little script to do what you want and avoid having to configure all of the weirdo files in tilde slash dot config and for mon ross cox uses a program called mon to watch files and run them whenever they change it's like watch on linux i guess this is pretty handy for iterative debugging so you don't have to keep rerunning your program every time you save and compile and they have a start of a similar script that does just that which can be improved, they write. Yeah, so these are a couple of changes so that um, your non-Plan 9 Unix is a little bit more Plan-like. like. Then we have a bigger article uh, from Ars Technica. A couple of people have probably seen this. Uh, not actually Linux distro review FreeBSD 12.1 release. Yeah, I think this is part of a, a series at uh, Ars Technica about uh, Linux reviews. Uh, so this is by uh, Jim Salter, who's written a bunch of articles about ZFS and stuff recently as well. Uh, so basically, he goes through trying out uh, FreeBSD 
Uh, he did get bit by that recent change in Xorg, uh, meaning he had to change his CTL so that his mouse would work. Uh, that's been fixed in head now uh, and will be fixed in 12.2, but that soured his experience a little bit. Uh, but he's got some good points about uh, kind of newbie issues he ran into. You know, uh, Jim was a FreeBSD user for a long time, but uh, switched away to Linux many, many years ago. Uh, so he has some vague memories about how things were. And sometimes that's actually actively unhelpful, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, it kind of uh, influenced the article a little bit. and uh, the Well, it's more that like if you remember how things used to be, it's like, yeah, but it's not like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, sure. You need to look at the current system and what it provides. There's a healthy uh, comment section as well with a lot of people um, uh, commenting on the actual article, um, but definitely worth a read to kind of see what um, things are in the eyes of a newbie or someone who's coming back to the system. All right, it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have a few articles here and items that are just to you. Uh, the first one is from NetBSD's blog about the Wi-Fi renewals restart, which sounds exciting. And it actually is. Yep. Uh, so this is back in 2018. Uh, Phil Nelson started a long-needed Wi-Fi refresh, basically syncing the uh, SourceSys uh, Net 802.11 uh, directory with the version from FreeBSD. He got a few things working, but then ran out of time and was able to spend enough time on it uh, to complete the task. So now uh, I think this is Martin Husman uh, is taking over this work, and Phil hopes to join in uh, later this summer. The main idea is to get better SMP locking support, support for newer and faster Wi-Fi standards, and support for virtual access points, uh, while all making future updates and the import of drivers from FreeBSD easier. I have collected quite a few Wi-Fi cards and USB dongles, but will ask for help uh, with other hardware I don't have handy. I hope to have a working setup and a few, and a few working drivers by the end of uh, the couple of months that they're getting funded by the NetBSD Foundation. Uh, for the curious, the first drivers they're hoping to work on are the URTWN, RUN, ATH, ATHN, and WI. Uh, followed by things other developers can convert and have hardware for, uh, possibly including some more Realtek uh, 802.11ac stuff, some Pinebook uh, Wi-Fi, the QB truck, and the Guru plug. Okay. Uh, we'll watch this space and we'll report on any uh, new developments in this space. So a lot of people require the Wi-Fi to be working and fast enough. But um, yeah, seems like NetBSD is for starting efforts here. Very good. Uh, then we have an update uh, about uh, Dragonfly BSD that their environment quick start section now has a section on Hammer 2 so you can see how to set that up and with a couple of examples. Yeah, so this is a, this document describes the Dragonfly environment one will find on a newly installed system. While you are getting started, please pay careful attention to the version uh, or level of Dragonfly that the document was written for. And yes, there's now a Hammer 2 section about Hammer 2 pseudo file systems. Saying in Hammer 2, the file system is typically mounted by its default label. Uh, there is no distinction between this pseudo file system and others you might have created. Uh, you can create additional pseudo file systems, or you can snapshot an existing PFS and specify a new PFS name for that snapshot. In Hammer 2, all snapshots must be independently mounted. In addition, Hammer 2 snapshots are writable entries and you can use them just as you would the original file system. Hammer 2 does not do automatic history, snapshotting, or undo. Uh, you have to snapshot a file system manually using the Hammer 2 utility. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, the next item has uh, Kamil Rutarovsky. Hopefully that's the right pronunciation. Uh, so since Asia BSDCon 2020 didn't happen, but the papers were already written, so Kamil thought, well, why not? upload this and give this paper to the public so people can read it. And that's what this item is. Uh, Engineering NetBSD 9.0 is the title. And there's a bit of a timeline and uh, top active committers on the first page. So this is really a good overview about the engineering efforts that go into the NetBSD project in this case that are probably not as um, well-viewed or not as 
publicly seen sometimes. So this is a good uh, behind the scenes look into how the project works and you know what kind of uh, efforts are done to actually make a release and what kind of different developments uh, they focus on. So this should have been a presentation, of course, but since the conference didn't happen because of the coronavirus, we uh, just have the PDF, and but it has all the information required to kind of make a, uh, a sense of what this is all about. Uh, then we have a video on YouTube about the antivirus protection using OpenSense plugins. So if you're using OpenSense as your router and you want to have it do some malware filtering with ClamD, then this video is for you. <laughs> Uh, speaking of cancelled conferences, or a conference happened in a different format this year, uh, the BSDCAN Home Lab panel recording session uh, is announced. That's probably you, what, what you are doing. So since the conference will not happen in a physical space, we're going online and uh, you will do a recording session for that specific Home Lab panel which people have looked uh, forward to, by the way. So this is a, a panel. BSDCAN didn't have many panels, but they tried one this year, and uh, it seems popular. Well, yes, that was my, my intent was to fix that. But <laughs> yeah, well, the plan for most talks is that the speaker will record the talk and we'll post it. For the panel to work well, we kind of need uh, the live audience interaction and so on. Uh, so our plan is that the four of us that will make up the panel are going to host it as a live event on May 5th at 2 p.m. So the normal time we do the live broadcast of BSD Now, but on a Tuesday instead of Wednesday. So May 5th at 2 p.m. Eastern, which is 1800 UTC. It'll be over at live.freebsd.org slash bsdcan slash bsdhomelab or something like that. The link, just go to live.freebsd.org and click bsdcan and homelab. Uh, and that'll have the live stream in the chat room. And hopefully uh, people can uh, ask us questions as we talk in the panel. Watch this space. Uh, hopefully we'll have a an email address for people that can send questions if you're not going to be able to make the live stream and so on. Uh, just got to finish getting all that organized. Oh, great. Who are the panelists again? Uh, the panelists will be myself, uh, Michael W. Lucas, uh, Nicholas Sizing, and Michael Dexter. Ah, good. That's a nice group of people. Yes. Well, and, you know, we wanted to be able to cover everything from like, what do you have to do to have your your partner not have a problem with you having a home lab <laughs> through like your home lab is a couple of spare laptops versus your home lab is uh, a rack full of machines in a basement, which you know, not everybody can have that. Uh, and so we tried to get a good cross section and we also tried to make sure, you know, when we give hardware advice, we can also cover what about if you live in Europe and so on. Yeah. Different perspective, different approaches also, yeah, that will certainly be interested to a lot of people because I guess most people have more than one computer at home and more and more people keep accumulating these. And that's kind of nice to, to see people who have done this before. Right. But, you know, if you are going to do a home lab, you know, what, what drives do I buy? What switches work well? And, you know, which NICs actually work with FreeBSD and, and don't cost $300? And yeah, I'm going to try to cover a lot and answer questions. Okay, very good. Yeah, I will try to make that and uh, if not then i will watch the recording okay so now we have something to announce to you which is not what we do every day or every show but you know times change and uh well we might as well get the word out so that people can know about it and make adjustments if necessary uh so in podcast news uh we have a bit of an update bst now will be going independent next month after being part of Jupiter Broadcasting since we started back in 2013, uh, BSD Now is now going to move off to be independent. Uh, we extend a very large thank you to Jupiter Broadcasting for hosting us all this time and for Linux Academy, making it possible for us to bring you over 100 episodes with no advertisements. But uh, Linux Academy is under new leadership now, and we understand that cutbacks need to be made, especially in the current uh, economic conditions, and BSD is not their core product. But this does not mean that your favorite BSD podcast is going away. Uh, as a listener, you probably won't notice much of a difference at all. The big thing we will mention is make sure that uh, your subscription to bsdnow.tv, like the RSS feed, is the one from bsdnow.tv rather than that, you know the Jupiter Broadcasting All Shows feed or something, so that you will continue to get the new episodes 
uh, delivered to your podcatcher or whatever. Right. We still do the weekly ones. So in case you don't see any new updates on your uh, podcast subscription, then you might as well check out our website. It's still uh, bsdnow.tv and uh, update it from there. So you, we will definitely produce more. And again, weekly episodes, uh, it's just different uh, things that we do now. It's it's we do it. We do a podcast as we as we did before and we had a couple of people behind it to do some of the you know cutting and editing work we still have that as well in the independent world that i would say so um nothing big will change for you yeah uh, so the biggest thing is just make sure you keep uh getting the show by making sure that you subscribe via bsdnow.tv uh, not one of the jupiter broadcasting feeds that will stop updating next month yeah, thanks to all the Jupiter Broadcasting and Linux Academy folks who, you know, have been with us and supported us and made all the, the changes that you normally wouldn't see behind the scenes, whether it's website updates or the, the cutting and audio editing. Uh, so that's that's been a great partnership from, from my point of view. And Yeah, like, uh, you know, when we started the show, with neither Chris Moore nor I had any of the ability to, to edit the video or any of that uh, or the audio or, or any of it. And so being able to use the infrastructure from Jupyter Broadcasting made it possible for us to do the podcast. Uh, and then over time, Linux Academy made the show uh, even better with uh, better audio editing uh, and all that. But in the end, as a listener of the show, you shouldn't notice much of a difference at all. Uh, just make sure that your the, the URLs where you get the show from are... Uh, the correct ones so that they continue to work. Exactly. So uh, you're not uh, too surprised. All right. Now it's time for our regular feedback and questions section this week. We have moved our feedback and questions to a more stable location on GitHub so that uh, they don't get lost by any kind of accident. Uh, of course, they could also get lost by GitHub, and then there's more th things lost or more important things lost, I would say, than uh, people submit stuff to us. But nevertheless, we have them in a new location, and you can find it there. Of course, they won't change much on GitHub, uh, but uh, it's a location where you can find them easier. They don't go away too quickly. And we always collect new feedback on feedback at bsdnow.tv about the show, uh, any questions you might have. And uh, this is the first we got this week from Jordan about ZFS pool of a uh, ZFS pool problem in particular. Uh, they write, hey, I have a ZFS pool that consists of a single RAID Z1 VDEV with three four terabyte disks in it. I recently put some more RAM in the machine that I use as a NAS, which is a running CentOS 8. Before I knew it, I was getting checksum errors on all three drives. I shut off the system and took out the new RAM as soon as I saw them, but it was the three in the 300s already. Ooh. Now my pool won't import with an error message of corrupted metadata. I've enabled ZFS debug messaging, and the main issue is checksum error equal 55 or E bad E. Uh, I've tried importing it with dash FX as a last resort, but it just says one or more devices is unavailable. I've also tried using a patch from one of the ZFS on Linux devs or to disable the transaction group restriction on Revines and using capital T to rewind uh, to an earlier transaction group, but it didn't work as well. Huh. Attached to the email is a copy of the ZFS debug log from whenever I try to import the pool. Anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated as my backups are lacking. Thanks in advance. Um, well, if you can't rewind to an older transaction group, there's possibly not that much that can be done. I've only encountered a situation like this once, and it was my own fault, uh, where I had a pool imported twice. Long story. Shouldn't have been able to happen, but uh, preponderance of errors caused the same pool to be imported with two different names on the same machine. Hmm. And so then they were scribbling over top of each other's Uber blocks and so on. In the really, really limited implementation of ZFS that the FreeBSD bootloader uses, I was able to read a couple of files, but not very many. Using that, I was hoping I could find the right transaction group to rewind to, but I never did figure it out. Uh, luckily, nothing important was on that pool, and so I just reformatted and, and reinstalled the system. I think the, I managed to get the SSH private key off so that it wouldn't uh, alarm everybody when they logged into the box again. Hmm. Um, but that was the only thing that was really unique to that machine, so it was okay. In your case, yeah, your best bet is to continue to work with the ZFS and Linux devs and see what can happen. Yeah, do you think that was caused by the uh, faulty memory chips you put in? or It's hard to say. Like, it would probably not be that 
consistent with all three drives like uh, yeah well no more of a uh, yeah a problem with a bit of ram is not likely to cause hundreds and hundreds of errors like the computer would likely crash long before you'd be able to corrupt that much of the pool honestly mm. it's hard to say yeah you know anything is theoretically possible mm. uh, sadly i uh, there's not much help that i can offer that's this problem is a little deeper in the guts of zfs than i normally venture to yeah the only thing that we can say is uh, don't trust your pool but make backups even though there's a lot of protections in zfs you still need to have uh, backups of your pool just in case yes like like has been said many times uh, raid is not a backup yeah sorry that this happened to you and uh, hopefully you can get some of your files back uh, with the help of some of the zfs uh, developers uh yeah Uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode and uh, we hope that you like this one and uh, keep uh, sending us feedback if you have interesting things found on the web about the BSDs and then we hope you listen to us next week as always. Yep. Thank you. See you next week. Bye.